Okay. We all have, turn me down just a hair. We all have um, little uh, mannerisms and ways of speaking that that uh, are unique to ourselves. <clears throat> One thing that I'll always remember from Clark Irwin is his when he's ready to have a, a Bible study or a devotional, he says, I'm going to have a little fun with you today. And, <laughs> and I think uh, hopefully this will be a, a little fun engagement today on the second commandment. Uh, usually that means interpreted, it's not going to be nearly as simple as what you thought it was going to be. So <clears throat> let me go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. You are awesome. You are untiring. You are faithful. You are merciful, kind, long-suffering. You are patient. You are relentless. Um... You are full of life and joy and peace. And we give you praise. And we come to you uh, wanting to have your law be written on our hearts. uh, Such that we, at all times, and in all places, both inwardly and outwardly, would want to keep it. We acknowledge that... um, even knowing how to apply the laws is a task in itself, and that's largely what we're about today. But, Father, the real work is that of your Spirit, which warms us to the law and gives us a, a hunger and a thirst to model and imitate you as we keep the law. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. First off, thank you everybody for that knew I got sick for your prayers. I was down for a couple days, but feeling much better now. So uh, let's, uh, if you have your uh, sheets that I've handed out, a little handout, it should be just one sheet, or no, this, yeah, I think this should just be one sheet on the second commandment. It's question number 108. Um, I don't know, just one, yeah, I think it's just one sheet on the second commandment, because I took out all the verses that made it, I just felt like the verses were too wieldy, and you guys like to look up verses anyway, so, uh, yeah, just, <clears throat> might just say the second commandment on it or something at the top of it, yeah, yeah, just the second commandment, but we're looking at question 108, what are the duties of the second commandment, and if you remember last week, The commandments all have a narrow understanding and they have a broad understanding. And the narrow understanding is relatively simple. Don't worship God using images. Okay, that's the the narrow understanding. The broad application of that and the one that the uh, writers of the catechism focus on is the, the regulative principle the regulative principle of worship. So there are two 
uh, philosophies within the uh, Protestant world on how do you govern worship. What's acceptable in worship and what's not acceptable in worship. And they're, they're written down here. One of the principles is you only do, you do only what God commands. That's what we call the regulative principle of worship. God tells us how he wants to be worshipped, and if he hasn't said to do something, then you don't do it, period. The other principle, usually looked at as like Lutheran, uh, but a lot of uh, the church uh, holds to this, do whatever God does not forbid. So you can see the, the range of those. And, and it, put in that, that sense, it, you could look at this in a very black and white terms. Okay? Uh, you know, there, you, got, you follow this principle, you follow this principle. But even, even in this if you hold to this principle, uh, which the Reformed Church has held to the regular principle uh, since the Westminster uh, Confession has been written, um, it's not always so simple as just do what God commands. And we're going to have fun with that today because we're going to talk about uh, start out talking about one of the things that God commands, and that is to sing. And how the, even in the Reformed community that has been battered around. What can we sing? You know, and all those kind of things. So the, the reformers usually broke up in our worship elements and circumstances. Now those are words that are not really in scripture, but the elements refer to the, the categories or the specific actions, like singing. Okay, singing is an element of worship. A circumstance of worship would be how much singing, how often, what sort of singing, those kind of things. Now, sometimes understanding the line between elements and circumstances is not always clear. So that's what I mean by having a little fun with you today, because what starts out of, yeah, I follow the regulative principle, you would think makes it really easy, but it doesn't. There's a lot of discussion that we'll have. So, but I want you to just hear, we're going to read question and answer 108, and uh, hear the, um, um, in this uh, answer, the elements of worship that are there. Um, and just really the, the, anyway, we'll just read it and you can talk about it after that. So who would like to read number 108 for us, question and answer. Raise your hand, we'll get a mic to you. There you go. Uh, Annalise is bringing the mic to you. What are the duties required in the second commandment? The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration and receiving of the sacraments, church government and discipline, 
the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God, and vowing unto him, <clears throat> as also the approving... Not disapproving. Oh, the disapproving, thank you, <laughs> detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it and all monuments of idolatry. Okay, thank you. So, in this uh, section, they talk about the elements of worship the worship that you should approve, and it says, so you're to receive, observe, and keep pure and entire all such religious worship, and then he focuses on what, what particular element of worship right off the bat. What prayer? Prayer is an element of worship. So God regulates that we must pray. So an element in worship is prayer. <clears throat> And God requires that we pray in worship. Now, what does this answer about prayer, this element about prayer, what does it not tell us about prayer? Who prays? It's an excellent question. So in our fellowship... In our worship service, the elder prays. Now, technically, everyone is to pray along with him. So it's not, you're not just listening to the, his prayer, but you're engaging prayer as you pray with him. But clearly, in our uh, fellowship, the elder is the one who's doing the praying up front. Is that required? No. You could, you could have congregational prayer. You could have, uh, you know, popcorn kind of prayer, or you could have several people pray, or, I mean, there's lots of things that you could do with prayer that's not necessarily governed. So how would you, just for the, not to go into this too much yet, but how do you think we came up with the idea of having the elder pray? And mind you, we have the green cards so that we can hear your prayer requests, right? Gives you an element of that. But why do you think we came up with this, this uh, way of doing things here? Because it concentrates and focuses the prayer. It concentrates and focuses the prayer. Excellent. Any other? Mary? Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's just all kinds of logistical difficulties, right? I mean, it's not, um, it's not a right or wrong way. We just, for other practical reasons, chose to do it this way. And it's not the only way to do it. So if you go to another church and they do it a different way, you can't say, that's wrong. The command and the regulative principle says you are to pray, okay? All right, so who prays is a part of it. What else is a part of it? Or not, not stated here that are questions that we have about prayer. <laughs> yeah, what are you to pray about? Um, part of the reason why we do the Lord's Prayer is to try to help people understand that those are the categories of prayer. It's not always that you pray those particular words, 
but you should pray those categories in your prayer. So it should be a, a guide to help us. And one of the reasons why we do want our elders to do this, and we try to give some training in this, is that you should have, you know, some adoration, some confession of sin in the prayer. You should, you should pray not only for personal needs here, but for missionaries and global needs. And so there's certain categories in the prayer that we pray for. But again, it's not explicitly stated in the command, this, this is what you must pray. It's not written down, okay? Also, along with this what, is whether or not the prayers should be written or extemporaneous. I don't know if I spelled that right. Extemporaneous. What is the difference between a written prayer and an extemporaneous prayer? I think both of these can be from the heart. Uh, yeah, so extemporaneous is off the cuff. You didn't have any thoughts before when I prayed this prayer this morning. That was extemporaneous. I hadn't in my mind thought through this is what I'm going to pray. I just at the moment, now there was thought that went into it, but it was extemporaneous in the moment thought. Okay, uh, Written prayers, you take much more time in preparation to write out even the, the turn of phrase and the wording of the prayer. Uh, now, some people argued that if it was written, it was not of the heart, which can happen, but it's not necessarily the, the, the case. Uh, and sometimes extemporaneous prayers can also not be of the heart. You can still just kind of start talking, you know. Now, it wouldn't happen with my wife. She's an introvert. She doesn't talk that much. But I, for me, boy, I could just... You know, and it actually focusing my prayers, thinking about what I'm going to say, actually makes for a better prayer. Uh, and do we have an example of both in Scripture? Of course we do. What are the Psalms but written, thought through prayers? Many of them, right? So um, anyway, so but the, the the commandment doesn't tell us exactly, but you better believe that in some fellowships, if you do. Only extemporaneous, they can mock it. Or if they do only written, like other people can mock it. It's like those are. It's like one of them is not right, the other is right, and it's one or the other. Uh, we don't do that. We have some of both, don't we? We we do a blend of that. So, um, how about how long? How long do you pray in a worship service? Now, some of you, you know, hear the, the elder pray up front, and you're happy for him to, that's enough, let's stop that, we've had enough of that, you know. Um, but, the scripture doesn't say how much time that you have to devote in an hour and 15 minutes of worship, how much of that time should be prayer, does it? So you have to think that through. If you talk to Danny, Danny is... Uh, uh, what's your what's your main stickler when it comes to the worship service? All the other elements, Danny. <sighs> Which I agree with him. So I just, he just brings it up to me all the time. So uh, I think that the the preaching of the word is the logical center of the uh, of the worship service. So therefore, all of the other things should accommodate it. So if you spend forty five minutes in prayer. And by the time you get to the sermon, you're just like, oh, I've got five minutes left in me. You've messed up, right? And according to our, our principle, it's not dictated in Scripture necessarily, but it's a circumstantial 
wisdom kind of uh, thought process that you go through. Um, Okay, so um, you should not have in your handout, but if you have a copy of the Westminster Confession, I want to, um, we're going to move into singing. If you, the catechism doesn't use singing at all. It just says prayers, does it not? There's no mention of singing in that catechism question that Lori read. But if you go to Westminster Confession 21.5, This is talking about uh, various elements of worship, and this is what it says. The reading of scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence. And then the third thing, singing of psalms with grace in the heart. And it talks about the sacraments and other elements that are vows and fastings, a lot of things that were mentioned in our catechism. Um, Westminster Confession of Faith 21.3 says, prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men, and that it may be accepted, it is be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to his will, understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and reverence, and this little if vocal in a known tongue. So basically, you're not supposed to pray in a language that nobody else understands. Um, But anyway, so what I'm getting at is I believe that prayer is the larger element of which singing is one type of prayer. It's not its own separate element. Um, they go together. Because prayer is, I mean, singing is prayer to harmony, to melody. You know, it's, it's, that's what's going on when we sing. Um, so this, in this uh, c- confession, what is it that we are to sing? according to the the confession there that I said. We are to sing blank with grace in the heart. What are we to sing? Psalms. So, what does the confession mean by psalms? We are to sing psalms. Now, this is where I'm going to start getting more fun with you guys. What does it mean we are to sing psalms? What what does this word mean here? No, you guys are afraid to answer because I said I'm going to... What's it? Psalms of David, which would be our, what we call our Psalter, even though he didn't write every one of the Psalms, uh, he wrote a, a major portion of them, speaking of the 150 Psalms, okay, Howard relates that there are other, and I'm going to, does Psalm have some narrow meaning or does it just mean songs? 
That's, that's, that's going to be a question we're going because Howard says that there are plenty of other songs in Scripture. Huh? It doesn't say song, it says psalms. Okay, so when you see in uh, the song of Moses, and they're singing that after they're brought through the Red Sea, the question is, is that song uh, worthy of being sung in worship? Or do you only sing the 150, 150 psalms of David? You see that? See the difference there? You can have these, these discussions, right? Uh, Jim, you want to make a comment? I, I think it's broader than just the 150 Psalms. I mean, we have examples in the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament of songs. For example, the Song of Moses and the Magnificat of Mary. Uh, those were songs that were not Technically, psalms, they're not in the book of psalms, but those were songs, and they qualify as psalms, in my opinion. Okay, so, and, so that's a good statement. I hesitate. You obviously know where I stand, because we do, in this worship service, largely what I think is right. So, <laughs> but, um, but here, I'm going to, just for the sake of argument, just because something is done in Scripture does not mean that it is commanded in Scripture. Is that true? Lots of things have happened in the Bible. David danced naked before the Lord, or at least very un, not very much clothing on him. Is that prescribed of all of us to do? No. <laughs> so, so there's a prescription is different. So are there a com- is there a command to sing the Psalms of David? I think we could argue for that. But are there commands to sing the Magnificat in worship? No. So again, just, you can see the questions and, and, uh, that happen. So, oh, go ahead. Uh, which is, man, it's like, it's like a cue card. It's like they just put it up because that's exactly where we're going to go to. Colossians chapter 3 is where we are. There's no doubt in the Old Testament worship of God, they used the 150 Psalms of David as kind of their songbook for what they, they used in worship, okay? Um, but let's go to Colossians 3. I'll turn there. Colossians 3, verses uh, 16 uh, and 17. Well, I guess we can just do 16. Just do 16. So, uh, Jim, would you read that for me, please? Uh, Jim Pate, next to Lori, since she's the one that directed us there. 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, so a couple things that you see right off the bat. There is a connection between the word and singing. 
because it's the, the uh, singing is in a participle, so it's, it's like, um, it's a part of letting the word of God dwell in you richly. Um, it's not something completely separate from that. So we, we usually say that if it's not biblical, if it's not coming from the doctrine and truth of the word of God, you shouldn't sing it. All right, that's just kind of a general principle that, that as you are singing, you are teaching the rest of the congregation truth. So you, don't, you don't usually think of that, right? But that's part of what you're doing as you sing. You're, you're singing the truth that the writer has written to the rest of the congregation is truth. And it's part of the responsibility of, of the, the ones who put the worship together and the elders to make sure that we're not singing as much as we're able things that are not according to the word, okay? Um, okay, so, uh, but then he says we are to uh, do this in psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. So the word psalm is really a transliteration. That's, that's psalmos is actually the statement that you have uh, in the Greek, psalmos, or psalmois, or whatever, um, and if you know, if you go back and look at the titles to the 150 uh, psalms that we have, um, 68 of those titles, it's abs- it says a psalm of David or a psalm. You know, it, it tells us that. Um, it doesn't really define what psalm is. What you can do is look at those particular uh, psalms and say how are they different from the ones that are not labeled a psalm but but 68 of them are called psalms um, the next word is humnos or hymnos hymnos is also uh a kind of a transliteration of the Greek word, what we find is that 13 times in the Psalms, it says a hymn of, you know, whatever. It could be a hymn of David or whatever. So sometimes you have a Psalm of David, sometimes you have a hymn of David, and neither of them really tells us what the definition or the distinction of the two are. Okay? Um. Then, the third statement is a spiritual song, right? That's the third. Um, actually, kind of comes from a, the Hebrew that says ode. We get the word ode from. Um, the word sure, which is song, is used 60 times in the Psalms. It's usually used in the body of the psalm. You know, I sing, or I sing a song, those kind of things. Uh, uh, but it is, it is uh, uh, but what's significant about sure is that it really is used of any song. Just like we use the word song in a, general sense, secular songs, whatever. That's kind of how sure is used. And that's why I think in this passage, 
Paul says that it's a spiritual song. Okay? Um, now, let's see here. I want to not give you too much here. Um, 30 of the songs, psalms, are subtitled with the word sure, a song. Um, and why they do that, again, we're, we're questioned. We're not sure why they do that. Um, so here's, here's Paul, and he's making the statement that we should be teaching each other the word from singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And all of those are referred to in the Psalms of the Psalter. Okay? Reformation Study Bible. Right. It's unlikely that those are different. Right. Right. So in our contemporary language, we basically say, okay, the Psalms refer to the, maybe the Psalms of David, the hymns refer to, I mean, of course, uh, the hymns of the Reformation, even though they <laughs> couldn't have been the hymns of the Reformation because we haven't got to the Reformation, but other songs other than the Psalter, and then spiritual songs are something entirely different. But I think a case is made. Turn to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. So in Psalm 67, uh, in the English, the title reads, To the Choir Master, a Song, a Psalm. And so we automatically see song and psalm put side by side. What you don't see, and if you read a lot of different translations, they'll say to the chief musician on Neganoth or with stringed instruments. Those are typical kind of translations um, of this. But the, um, in the Greek, which is you know, the, the Septuagint of the, of the Hebrew, this is, it's so clear. It says, to the chief... In hymnois, psalmos, and odes, which are the three words that our Paul picks up on. Okay, all in the same in one psalm, they give the title and use all three of them at the same time. Okay, now, um, what can we learn from this? Some people. Some people argue from this that Paul is giving us a clear command to sing the Psalms. I would agree with that. I I come to the conclusion from what Paul says here 
that to not sing the Psalms would be a disobedience of the regulative principle because God has commanded us to sing the 150 Psalms of the Psalter, okay? Some people then conclude that from what Paul says, that's the only command we have, and to sing anything else is a breach of the second commandment, which those people would be someone that are called exclusive psalmody. Okay, we are not an exclusive psalmody church. I haven't justified that for you. You just know that that's the case because we sing hymns. And contrary to what most of you are new visitors, we're not even opposed to singing new worship songs. We just haven't had the right dynamic of song leader to be able to help facilitate some of the um, more modern tunes to worship. We're not opposed to that at all. There was a time where we had three weeks of the, on a five-week period, three of them would be traditional hymns and psalms, and the other one would be more um, contemporary. The other two, one or two, would be more contemporary. So anyway, that's just, but some people argue for exclusive psalmody. And really, Clark would tell you this, if you know your Scotch history, that was the position of the Reformed Church for a long time, okay? That we only sang psalms. And I think I've had this discussion with Mary. Um, Isaac Watts, who is a wonderful hymn writer, who takes a lot of the Old Testament hymns and actually puts them into Christian, um, bringing Christ out in the Psalms. He was very much criticized when he first uh, started doing this because he was no longer just singing the Psalms themselves. But I think that brings up a great point and one of the reasons why I am not exclusive psalmody. While the Psalms uh, surely teach us of Christ. Oh, if you neglect the Psalms, you are neglecting the richness of Christ. You are only being taught those in a foreshadow form, not in a fulfillment form. And you're not even, none of the Old Testament uh, uh, psalms actually use the name Jesus, right? And and we're already told in the confession that to not pray in Jesus' name is is a bad thing. You got to pray in Jesus' name. He's come. We should be praying in Jesus' name. So one of the arguments against exclusive psalmody is that we need to take those foreshadow psalms and bring them into a New Testament context. We have the New Testament scriptures, and we should be using those scriptures to write new songs to sing in the name of Christ. Now, um, what I think has happened over, this is just me meditating and thinking about this, this is part of what I'm called to do as a pastor Uh, is think about worship, because worship matters to God. It's not something we just come in and do, and it doesn't matter what we do, he's just happy with whatever we do, or we don't just make our own feelings and desires the center of what we do in worship. We're thinking about what God wants us to do. Um, What we have done is, I think, over the last 400 years, 
most of Reformed thinking has moved to the acceptance of singing hymns that are not the 150 Psalms of the Old Testament, uh, and, and we've made the focus on Scripture being the foundation, that they should be scriptural. What I think we haven't done is we have not, we've forgotten that the 150 Psalms of the Old Testament are not just good things to sing, they are a model of what songs should be. That's where I think we've gone wrong. So like in contemporary worship, you have some people that will sing the same phrase over and over and over again, and you say, what's wrong with that? Well, I don't know. Unless you look at the Old Testament Psalter as a model for your singing, and then you start to realize that the Old Testament Psalter doesn't do that very often. It does do that. Uh, What's this? I'm not not on top of my head which one it is, but it says the steadfast love um, something. It just... God's love is everlasting. It just says it over every verse. It says the same thing over and over and over again. So, so is it wrong to have repetition? No. Uh, John Frame makes the case that it actually is helpful to you to sing the same truth over and over again. I think that's a truth statement. But if you look at the, the Psalter as a whole, you, you don't make that the essence of your singing, do you? There's, there's, uh, you also see in the Psalms that they... They have varied emotional situation of the Psalter. So sometimes the psalmist is really defeated and he comes in groaning and then he, he meditates and usually comes out of that in a worshipful tone, except in one psalm, Psalm 88, it ends on a down note. So then you say, well, okay, is it, is it okay to have a song that we sing that's really kind of sad and depressing? Well, I'd say yes. But it wouldn't be right to make 80% of your songs like that, would it? Because the, the psalms tend to give us a pattern of, yes, you're in your situation, but the word brings you out of that. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Is there any designation in any of these words, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, um, like in reference to whether we as a congregation are adoring God, singing praise to God, or supplicating, or whether we're singing our emotions about God? You see what I'm saying? Right. So typically when we, um, a lot of the distinctions between modern worship and and uh, some of the more traditional hymns is that the traditional hymns were more centered on God rather than centered on the emotions of the heart of the worshiper. Um, you know, I'm giving my whole heart to you or, you know, that kind of thing rather than saying declaring praise. Well, again, I would say that the Psalms do both. And so to have one to the exclusion of the other is not a good thing. Right now, you can't even make these general statements unless you've spent a good amount of time in the Psalms to know what they do, right? But some of the Psalms are very heartfelt personal prayers, and some of them are not so much. Um, No. 
not not explicit. That's what I'm saying. If anything, they're somewhat overlapping, and the fact that you could use all three words in one psalm is is uh, it's hard to just make hard, fast, clear cut distinction. In my opinion, Danny, you might have a different uh, grasp of that. I would say it's the same thing. David's just or David Paul is just making a general statement of all the Psalter. Uh, kind of like when Jesus talks about him being in the law and the prophets. He's basically basically saying the whole Old Testament is just a way to kind of say mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yeah. That, that's what I think is going on. I could be wrong. But. No, I think you're I think you're right. Um Also, if you look at the Psalms, they are concerned with, okay, uh, they are concerned with theology. The Psalms will take theological points, uh, uh, reflections on the law, for instance, and they'll flesh that out uh, in, the, in their own experience. So they'll, they'll do that. They're also, and goes along with that, theological and biblical, but they're also very historical. So the Psalms, they, sometimes the, the writer of the Psalm will, will not let you know the exact history of what's going on because he doesn't want the Psalm to just be totally connected to that one event, but they're really grounded in God's working in people's lives in real situations. And so I think that's helpful to us as we think through as well. So if, you know, we sing... Um, uh, it is well with my soul. Well, is that not a helpful uh, thing to know that the writer of that lost his children crossing the Atlantic and he writes the, song, the hymn right where um, uh, those children died, the ship went down. So there's a historical context. It's, not a, it's actually helpful to us to know something of that. Now, the Psalms don't always give us the historical context, but they are grounded in history. And I think our hymns should do that too. Now, I'm in my, in my wording to you trying to use psalms only of the 150 psalms and hymns of what we do in general, just not because there's a clear distinction in the words themselves, but just to not be confusing to you. So hymns, I'm using it as our hymn book. And the psalms, I'm using it as 150 psalms. So, yes, Ken. Going back to the aspect of the repetition, Mm-hmm. Uh, when you hear a lot of the modern songs in some of the, the, the churches, it ends up being like a mantra, like an Eastern mystical type of experience where they mm-hmm. repeat the, the same thing, not just a few times, but over and over and over and over. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, um, that it, that disturbs me greatly. Uh, but um, in synagogue worship, they really had a few kind of chanting tunes. And I didn't know this until... Um, uh, ben Francis came and actually was kind of giving us some of the old chanting uh, tunes of the uh, early Scotch reformers, but but it, it it was just kind of a rhythmic chant as they sang. So it's it's not like Christians. It actually brings us to the next point, which is: Does the Bible dictate music? That's another question, right? We know we're supposed to sing, we know we're supposed to pray, but does the Bible actually dictate? Music. Well, we know enough of the beginnings of psalms that that sometimes it'll say with stringed instruments, or sometimes it'll give us a tune. Of course, we don't know what the tune is, but it'll actually tell us that there's a tune. But it doesn't really give us the music. All right. 
Um, and, and Ken makes a point, and I think is true, you don't want to model your music off of pagan music, right? Of course, on the other side of that is, uh, you always hear the adage that Luther actually made use of songs that were sung in bar rooms, you know, so like, which is which, you know, how do we find the, the, those? And so, um, again, I don't think the Bible actually um, uh, tells us a particular type of music or even instruments. So that should help us when it comes to song. The, the words of the song being biblical and it being something that is teaching us truth is more important than the music of the song. Because if this music was absolutely important, God would have, I think, my, dictated that. He doesn't. At the same time, we do not think that music is unimportant, and I would say that music is there to help aid in the singing. So principles that I have, and you guys can debate if you want, I think tunes, this, uh, this again, it just keeps going deeper, and so it's like tunes should be singable to the congregation. Because the point is that the congregation sing, not just that the person up front sings. Okay, now that can be a lot of you know dispute. A lot of our hymns in the in our Trinity Psalter, I think, are very difficult for me to sing because they're kind of a little high sometimes, right? So, but it, the, the our hymn book was written in a time when people sang four parts in their singing, and we don't do that anymore. So, I would typically in an old day sing the alto part, not the melody. Whatever, but they're supposed to be singable by the congregation. That's one aspect of it. I also think that the, that the music should support the words. Um, this is only a few times does this, do you just go, ah, oh, that music really supports what's being said in the song. So you, these, are, these are goals of which you're heading to, but you just can't get it all the time doesn't always work that way but it's I think it should support so you shouldn't have a real happy tune to a very dreary song that kind of thing um, we last thing I'll say and then I'll just take any questions one of the things that we do in this church um, that has no real basis in scripture it's just a it's just a kind of a wisdom thing that we've done is try to emphasize um, acoustical music rather than amplified music. So uh, we don't usually have an electric guitar. Many churches would, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong. We have just chosen to do that because we don't want the music to overpower the singing because the singing is paramount. That's the, what we've tried to do. So... Um, so, but, I mean, there could be other ways to do this. Sometimes you see, uh, you'll go into a church and they'll have a full drum set. And drums are pretty overpowering. But what do they do? They usually, like, wall it off and put, like, a glass thing around it to try to muffle it a little bit. I respect that. I think that's a good thing. They're not hard and fast rules. But what you're trying to do is follow the general principles of the Scripture rather than just being driven by what someone likes. Okay. Other questions and comments on this. I, so what you're seeing is, okay, element of scripture, we need to sing. 
But that's not as simple as it gets, right? It's a lot more complex than that. But God cares about what we sing. So comments or questions? Lee? It was Psalm 136. Okay. Yes, and it probably says it 25 times. I mean, it's, it's uh, right. So do you, you, that, that keeps me from saying that it's wrong to repeat something over and over. 26 times, which is, yeah, that's more than the 22 uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but go ahead. Jim. I think where some churches begin to go wrong is when they begin to forget what the real purpose of singing in, in worship is. It's really a song, as you said, it should be a, a musical prayer to the Lord, if you will. The whole purpose of the book of, of Psalms, I think, is, is to direct God's people uh, in praying to the Lord. So uh, if we remember that, I think uh, that's what our songs should be. They should be musical prayers to the Lord. This morning, as we were driving uh, to church from our home, uh, we listen to the Lord's Prayer being sung, mm-hmm. and that's a and that's a wonderful song to listen to, and it is the Lord's Prayer. So that's not a psalm, as <laughs> long as we remember that the purpose of singing is just musical prayers to the Lord. Excellent, and and Jim, just so everybody's clear. We are emphatically not an exclusive only psalmist congregation. We, we do value the psalms, and you'll know in our worship, we try at least in each worship, doesn't always happen, to have one of the psalms that we sing. Now, just to be fair, I would love it if someone would, would take the time to go back who understands their, their Hebrew, who understands their theology, and who understands poetry enough to actually rewrite this Psalter in more modern English, like we do with the Bible, right? And even put more, hint, more tunes to it. So some of this is very old King James English. It's sometimes hard to deal with, but you know what? Until somebody can do that, in a way that's really helpful, this is what we have. Does that make sense? And I'm thankful for the people in the past who took the time and effort to give us what we have. So next time you go, oh, man, that's hard. You know, just realize it's, it's not maybe as good as we want because we might have a new translation of the Bible, but, but it's what we have, and it would take a lot of work to update it. Go ahead, Lori. I was just going to say in reference to like writing new songs and stuff with the caveat that we're being biblical about it. I think that sort of goes back to our being made in God's image and creativity mm-hmm. and you know he the fact that he gave us music, he gave us voices mm-hmm. some of us that could sing. <laughs> but you know, I think that's a beautiful part of it and why I I can't believe that he didn't intend us to pour out our prayers and music and use our creativity and write songs to sing to him. And, 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 that, and I agree with you, but, but to some people, it edges away from the regulative principle. And so I, that's, as someone who's a believer in the regulative principle, 
I would follow what you're saying because that's the general principle of Scripture. But um, there will be some people who will say, hmm, you are not really a Reformed person. You're not a follower of the regulative principle. Just not typical. We usually fall on the other side, but, you know, truth is a ridgeline. Uh, go ahead. In Revelation 5, it says, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that new songs are a bad thing. I think that the Bible tells us. Well, that, but okay, if I'm being an exclusive psalmist, I would say, yeah, well, that's prescription of what's going on in heaven. It's, I mean, it's description of what's happening in heaven. It's not ever prescribed here. But I agree with you. I, I'd use that same argument. Go ahead. Yeah. Psalm 136. That, I mean, that is a rep repetitive declaration of an attribute of God. Yes. And I think that that should be reflected. When I think about modern worship music, mm -hmm. um, very few times can I think of a song that has a lot of repetition that is a distinct repetition of an attribute of God. And I think mm -hmm. absolutely we should repeat those things yeah. specifically about who God is over and over again. And it happens um, to be the, my favorite, hesed. I mean, right, that's the right. covenant love of God. That's what it's declaring. The steadfast love is hesed over and over Safe again. Safe harbor, yeah. Yeah, good. <clears throat> this is your time to ask questions or comments, so. Yes. Going back to your original uh, points there about, you know, prayers being both written and extemporaneous. Yeah. Where's the balance between, you know, taking what the confession says about, you know, safeguarding and, and making pure forms of worship? Singing to me is both um, something I always hated as a kid, <laughs> uh, but didn't, not until... You know, I started to mature my faith. I realized that it's something that God wants. So it's hard for me even now sometimes because it's like, ah, it's just not my thing. But because he's ordained it, that's why I pray. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's a prayer. But there's also an aspect to me of uh, what, where's the line between we're being obedient to a commandment of God and where is it a free expression of my heart giving back and thanksgiving? Because those words may not be straight from Psalm, you know, 45. Mm -hmm. But out of the what God's done for me, maybe there's a song, maybe there's something I write or something like that. Where does that line between creativity and, and free will giving back to God of what he's done in your heart versus being the uh, obedient to, to what he's commanded us to do? Well, I would say that duty is free expression. They're not, they're not two different things. So God doesn't just require of you to sing a song, but he hopes that you'll sing it with your, all of your heart and be a free expression of true worship of him. The duty is to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. So, so I would, this is how I would approach worship. I'll come in and I'll say, it is my duty to sing this song. And by the way, whether you like the tune or not. In fact, I would say that sometimes when you are striving to submit and obey God's command, when you don't like the tune, it's probably more pleasing to him than when you do like the tune. 
Now, we're not trying to make tunes bad, and that's why we'll try to mix them up and do various things. But, but if, if you're not ever called to worship according to a tune that you don't like, it's all about your heart, what you're just feeling in the moment. We are called to step out of what makes us comfortable and feel good in the moment. I, if I go to a concert, I go to songs that I just like. <laughs> But when you come to worship, you're not here to just worship the songs that you like. So if, I wish Christian was here because he asked this question last week. If someone says, I cannot be in that church because I don't like the style of music, that better be a relatively small item on the list. It can be, a, it can be an item. You know, we all have things that we care about in worship. It can be a part of that. But it can't be the big thing. If that's like everything, I love everything, but I just don't like this song. I think I'm going to go somewhere else. That, I think that's not a good, healthy thing. Now, but I would say that I will come in and, and I'll sit down and sometimes the hymn that we're singing, I'm lifted up and just I feel totally engaged in that hymn. And I'm just happy to sing. And I think that's really what God wants of us. He wants us to be enthralled and focused on him and rejoicing as we sing. But if that's not there, you still sing admitting to God that your heart's not all in this, you know, confessing that to him, um, crying out to him to keep working in you so that you love to sing more. I'll tell you that it's taken years for me. I came from a whole different, uh, a whole different uh, worship expression in the Lutheran church coming into a Reformed church. This is very different. We had large uh, organs playing, and I mean, it just was a whole different feel. I mean, you were lifted into majesty a lot, and so um, to, it just was more simplistic. It just didn't grab me as much, um, and then I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, which was much more just the heartfelt kind of choruses, and so coming into reform worship has taken years, but I'll tell you that as Robin and I have tried to sing hymns and family worship, over time, my heart has become more engaged in those. And so I think there's an attitude of, yes, I'm going to do this, maybe out of duty, but recognizing that you're still asking God to help fill you even more so that it's your fullness of joy as you sing that hymn. And you may never get there completely, but you're still striving for that every time you come to worship. And I don't know if that answers your question or not. If it doesn't, ask, ask it again. Yeah. is God said, hey, this is how I want you to worship me. But yet he's created us to, to give back. And, and sometimes these discussions on, on worship is, is, I don't know if it's a, it's a question of sin, that, that people are afraid of the new being sinful and, and, and we trust the old. Um, not saying that's wrong, but it's, there seems to be more arguments in churches over the music in worship than there is the fact that we should worship. And, and we, we have friends that are creative. They're modern-day hymn writers. In some churches, like you've discussed here, they wouldn't be welcome because those aren't the original psalms, right? So, so how does that all play out? In- that is an issue of sin, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the people that won't allow that. In yeah. fact, we actually had a guy that was coming forth for being a teacher in our denomination, our presbytery, and we didn't let him come in because he was absolutely exclusive psalmody, and he... In his own church, if it wasn't a psalm, he didn't even stand up to worship. He just kept sitting down. And I thought, oh, man, this is not going to go over well. Um, I think we need to approach this with an attitude of humility. 
uh, and not sheer condemnation every time someone's a little bit different than us. And that's a hard balance to have. Fortunately, your current elders have been, um, they've all got opinions on this, what things they like and don't like, but they have, we have not been divided on this, and we have not made it an issue of contention in the church, which I think is helpful. And I do want to stress to you that, that we are not opposed to new songs. I mean, if think principally speaking, that would be terrible. If you're, if you're okay with a new song in the 1600s, how can you not be okay with a new song in the 22nd, 21st century? So on principle, that's the case. Now, I would give a word of caution. Many of the hymns that we love came out of the Reformation, which was an extremely wonderful period of theological depth and understanding of Scripture and the uh, um, Shakespearean English. And, you know, the, so I think that we're, we've dumbed down our culture in a lot of ways so maybe the quality's not quite as good, and I do think there should be a little bit of caution when we bring new stuff in, but there are, there are great hymns. In Christ Alone is a brand new hymn that I think is, will, will uh, stand the test of time. A hundred years from now, we'll probably still be singing that hymn. Um, so anyway, I, it, 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 music should not divide us. That's one of the reasons I brought this out today. Uh, we all have positions, we all have thoughts, we all have feelings, we can have good discussion. Feel free to come and talk to the elders about worship as well, because we are, uh, we are not perfect, and we do not have it all together in this congregation. But we care about singing. That's the point. So that's all we have time for today. So let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you for giving us... Uh, those scriptures that can guide us and direct us in worship, please, Lord, help us to, um, to bow our hearts to you, help us to know you and to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.